Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other episodes of this great podcast over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week I sat down with Dylan Wood to chat about a whole bunch of the bikes and other stuff that we've been testing of late, and there's a whole lot to it because even though it's starting to be ski season up here, we are still very much hard at work testing bikes and gear and have a whole lot in the works there. So we chat about the Canyon Spectral 125, the new Trek Fuel EX and Ibis Ritmo V2S, the Fizari LaSalle Peak that we just put up our full review of a little while ago, the new mulleted Santa Cruz Nomad that I have been getting along especially well with, and a bunch more stuff. And along with that, we also chat a bit about a bunch of the new upcoming bikes that we're going to be spending time on soon and are most excited about. So we'll get to that in just a moment here. But before we do, I want to take just a second to encourage you to check out our Blister Summit and come join us in Crested Butte this February if you're a skier or a snowboarder interested in checking out a whole bunch of the best gear out there from a ton of different brands meet with your favorite blister reviewers including myself i'll be out there and just get to have some really good panel sessions with folks from the snow sports industries athletes and check out blister headquarters there's a lot of good stuff happening there and all the information's in the link in the show notes so check that out and come ski or ride with us in february so with that Let's get right to my chat with Dylan Wood about all of the bikes we've been testing of late. Well, Dylan, great to sit down and chat about bikes as always. And thanks again for hopping into the recording closet for us here. Appreciate the efforts on audio quality. So good to chat. And uh, even though it's kind of turning the ski season a lot of places, I've still been doing a whole lot of riding and have got a lot of new stuff to talk about. So uh, I think we can probably get right into it. How are things though? Things are good. Yeah, I think you've been doing enough mountain biking to account for both of us because it's been definitely ski season over here in Colorado, or at least we've got us in Valley for a few weeks now, I'd say. Um, Crescent Butte just opened on Wednesday, uh, just shy of a week ago from when we're recording today. And we got a good bit of snow uh, today, 11 inches up in CB and maybe like four or five inches down here in Gunnison. So yeah, definitely feeling a lot more like uh, ski season than bike season, but uh, definitely got a good bit of riding in the last portion of the of the summer there. So yeah, how are things over in Washington? Also getting snowy, but still doing some bike stuff too. So on that note, kind of one of the first things I wanted to talk about, been spending some time on the canyon spectral 125 which as the name would suggest 125 rear travel built around a 140 fork and it's kind of interesting it's an especially aggressive take on a bike in that travel class in the lower geometry setting it's got a 64 degree head tube angle i think 485 millimeter reach if i recall correctly in the size large that i've been on um and otherwise just a pretty aggressive version of that bike and the build is commensurate with that it comes with a fox 36 with a grip 2 float x rear shock sram code rsc brakes with a 200 millimeter rotor in the front and so on so they're definitely aiming it to be something that kind of feels like a scaled down 
bigger bike rather than a more capable XC bike or something like that. And it does seem like it kind of mostly hits that mark. It's definitely more stable, more composed at speed, less interested in going slow and kind of feeling like a beefed up XC bike than a lot of the other 120-ish stuff out there. The thing that has sort of been a little harder for me to figure out is like exactly who that means that it makes the most sense for and what its limitations are as a bike with aggressive geometry, but not a huge amount of suspension travel. And it's kind of a funny mixed bag because if you are riding stuff that you know kind of well and can push it pretty hard, it does feel a lot of fun because it's this very short travel responsive snappy bike that still has the geometry to go pretty hard but it just doesn't have a ton of suspension travel the suspension honestly doesn't feel especially well sorted out even for not having a ton of travel and so it's not very forgiving when you inevitably start making mistakes and it just sort of feels like a little caught in between trying to be a few different things and doesn't necessarily quite nail any of them um i need to get some more time on it but it's sort of an interesting bike that feels really good and really fun when it's working right but doesn't quite work right all the time and i'm sort of curious i know you've ridden the longer travel regular spectral and so i'm just kind of curious like what your thoughts are to that take on the mini one and anything that kind of jumps out at you there yeah yeah the the longer spectral the spectral 29 was also kind of interesting in the sense that it was pretty long and had pretty slack and progressive geometry but it also it was i think 150 160 sort of longer travel trail bike i wouldn't you know maybe shorter travel enduro bike you could call it that um yeah it was and it was pretty light too so it was it was kind of an also an interesting mix of these of these traits that it was hard to sort of pin down exactly what category i would put it in or like what is the proper use case for a bike like this um i i definitely really enjoyed it and it found it to be um i guess surprisingly nimble and stable at the same time um sort of as a as a function of its, its low weight mixed with its pretty long, it was a 485 reach on a large, so pretty long bike. Um, and I, I guess the spectral 125 sort of sounds like they just shrunk that bike down. And I don't, I don't know to what extent that goes to, if they're even, you know, using the same front triangle or something, I don't know the details on that, but, uh, yeah, it, it sounds like they have a little bit in common for sure. Yeah. I mean, they've got almost exactly the same geometry actually, interestingly yeah sort of an interesting take on something and i'll be getting a lot more time on it soon here and uh and actually have got our other washington-based reviewer zach henderson spending a little time on it too so um we will have a lot more to say about that as we spend more time on it and get it figured out a little bit better but uh it's been an interesting mix so far sounds good so then to move up in the travel range a little bit we're kind of going to do these just in increasing order i have also started spending some time on the new Trek Fuel EX. So that's 140 millimeter rear travel with a 150 fork. 
and kind of meant to be their all-rounder trail bike in the same kind of class as stuff like the Santa Cruz High Tower, more or less, and a bunch of bikes in that kind of mid to slightly longish travel trail bike kind of class. And one of the things that's most interesting about the Fuel EX is that it's got an especially huge amount of adjustability in the frame. It's got two different flip chips, one for geometry and one for the amount of rear suspension progression. And then on top of that, they also offer a special offset angle headset for it. Uh, doesn't come with the bikes, but available separately to toggle the head tube angle by plus or minus a degree. And though the large that I've been riding is set up as a full 29er, they also condone running it as a mullet in a sort of smaller subset of the geometry configurations that are possible. And so there are a lot of different ways to set that bike up. And since it just showed up about a week ago, I haven't tried very many of them yet, but uh, just sort of getting it sorted out on the baseline kind of middle ground sort of settings first, and then I'll start getting weirder once I have done that. But current take on it is that it does pretty much feel like a well-rounded, versatile take on that kind of 140 travel trail bike class without anything super dramatic jumping out as it being kind of off to one end of the spectrum or the other as far as that sort of bike goes. Pedals pretty well, reasonably stable at speed, but not a bike that you have to be going super fast down something really steep for it to come alive. It's nimble, fun in a pretty big range of trails, and just thus far seems like a pretty cool, pretty well-rounded kind of do-it-all sort of bike. The thing that I kind of feel like I need to do the most work on in terms of getting it set up and figured out is that there are some little bit of quirkiness to the build that I've got. So I'm on the uh, Fuel EX 9.8, which is a moderately high-end build, but a couple notches short of their most full bling options. And what's sort of odd about it is that it's a full XT drivetrain and brakes. So really nice stuff there. Um, but then it's got just a base performance Fox 36 and float X rear shock. And so it's the base grip damper in the fork with adjustable low speed compression and rebound, and then just adjustable rebound on the rear shock, no compression adjustment at all. And, which is, you know, fine. You're making a bike at a little bit lower price point. You have to compromise somewhere, right? But then they've paired that with carbon wheels and a kind of crazy one-piece carbon fiber bar stem super fancy deal there. And it's a good bike. It feels like they've kind of spent money on the build in the wrong places a little bit. Like... I'd way rather have better suspension over either the carbon wheels or especially the carbon one piece bar stem deal, especially because I'm finding the one piece bar stem unit to be pretty annoying because it means that you don't have any control over the bar roll and ability to sort of adjust the sweep and get that feeling right. And I acknowledge that I might be a little fussier about bar sweep and roll than a lot of people, but foregoing the ability to adjust that really doesn't feel like a an upside in my book, even though it's, yeah, sure, the the package is 
a little lighter and it looks really cool, but it comes with a pretty significant trade-off in terms of setup. And since it's a part that they sell aftermarket for about $370 for the total package, it doesn't seem like the right place to have spent money on this particular build at all. Hmm. Yeah, the Fuel EX is a is a pretty interesting bike. That was maybe the bike that surprised me the most this year as to like, it was, it was pretty surprising that Trek came out with a bike like this. I worked at a Trek dealer for years when I was in high school and the Fuel EX was probably, eh, I don't, I don't want to say vanilla, but I mean, it was kind of one of the most like vanilla trail bikes out there. It's a pretty safe bet for a lot of people. It's easy to recommend, but you know, not, not maybe the most exciting trail bike out there. It's kind of like the office of, of trail bikes. I'd say, sorry to office fans out there, but yeah, this new one is like the geometry is, is pretty wild for, for a huge brand like Trek and all of the geometry adjustments and the shock adjustments and stuff too. It's just, yeah. And even the frame just looks completely different from, from anything that Trek has come out with recently. So yeah, that was definitely one of the, one of the cooler bikes I've seen drop this year. And yeah, it's, it's sort of disappointing to hear that the build is maybe not making as much sense as it could. And yeah, I don't, I don't get the whole stem bar thing. One of my roommates works at a Trek dealer and he bought that and put it on uh, his SB 150 and it just, yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't really get the, the advantage there. Like what's wrong with a, with a stem and a bar. <laughs> it just seems like it's just fixing a problem that, that doesn't really exist. And um, yeah, I think it would be a, a little bit more exciting if they had a little bit better suspension on that bike as well. But uh, yeah, good to hear that everything else is working out good so far. Yeah, it is for sure. And you're totally right to note that it is kind of a departure from track. I mean, one it just looks different than their aesthetic has been for a while but it's also like you said just a more aggressive bike in terms of geometry than they have been making really and uh the amount of adjustability is kind of new to the session their downhill bikes been pushing a bunch of that and kind of seems like where a bunch of the little details that trickled down to the fuel ex started but for their trail and enduro kind of bikes they've been a little more conservative for a while and this is a big step towards something a little more progressive and out there which is cool to see and it is mostly working out pretty well the little quirks to the build that i just described notwithstanding so overall er good early impressions just you know like most things a few little things that could be refined perhaps yeah david always has something to complain about <laughs> yeah. If only everyone came out with a David Golay pro model bike, then then David would have absolutely no complaints on bikes yeah. and big ideas. Just have to let me design everything, and then, <laughs> then the world will be be better. And I I don't know, would never sleep. But exactly. Yeah. Not not an ego centric no, point of view at all. <laughs> anyway, to keep moving here. Next up, also been spending time on the updated ibis ritmo v2s which in contrast to the fuel ex got a much more modest update recently uh the original version of the ritmo v2 came out a couple years ago and the new v2s is not super different same 147 rear travel with a 164 same geometry etc because it's actually still the same front triangle they 
just updated the rear end, hence S for swing arm. Uh, but that did change some stuff. It's got a SRAM UDH now, which is nice. Um, but kind of the more significant stuff is that they've beefed up the rear end quite a bit, made the lower link especially a bit wider to stiffen up the frame, made some refinements to the pivot hardware and stuff to go along with that, and so on. So kind of a minor rolling update to that bike more than a brand new model or anything like that. But I actually hadn't spent much time on the V2 going into this. So um, still keen to check it out. And early impressions of that bike have been extremely good, actually. It's sort of an interesting bike in terms of its place in the market and in Ibis's lineup because it's the biggest, longest travel non-e-bike that they make. And it's the bike that their EWS team is racing on. But it's not a super aggressive bike it's 147 rear travel it's got a 64.9 degree head tube angle and so on so as compared to a lot of the big modern enduro bikes out there it's definitely dialed back a little bit and at sort of as expected given all that it doesn't feel like a true modern enduro bike really but it does feel just a bit more game on and kind of wants to be pushed a bit harder than a lot of the 140-ish trail bikes out there, like the Santa Cruz Hightower, for example. It's kind of a middle ground between those two classes of bikes and fills that middle ground really nicely. It feels very coherent and well thought out and just a very cohesive package for that slot. And so pedals super well. It's pretty light. The I'm on the XT build with the carbon wheel upgrade, and it's right around, or I think, just a tick under 32 pounds complete. And that's including a float X2 rear shock and a Fox 38 fork, so kind of burly suspension and so on. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun, um, especially kind of on fairly fast, medium technical, but not super gnarly trails where you might start to really want a bigger bike, like a 170 enduro bike or some such. It's been really fun. It's a pretty good blend of being kind of stable at speed, pretty quick handling, and just very sharp and precise and really easy to just put it right where you want it and ride really cleanly and smoothly and just is a kind of bike that feels like it facilitates that pretty well. So it's working out. I'm getting along with it really well. Did you get much time on the original Ritmo or Ritmo V2? No, the only Ibis I've ever ridden is the Ripley AF. Yeah, so I haven't spent any time on the Ritmo. Um, yeah, it sounds like a pretty pretty versatile option. And um, it sounds pretty similar to the Revel Rail 29, based on what you've described. And it seems like a lot of companies are... I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say dialing it back with their longer travel bikes, but maybe not following the trajectory that it maybe seemed like they were going to for a couple of years where, you know, every new bike was just blowing minds with how long and slack and downhill oriented it was, at least in the enduro class. And it seems like maybe brands are realizing that not everybody needs their bikes to be so big and, and capable. And it's maybe a little smarter to, to have something in that, more capable than a trail bike 
little bit more versatile than a big old enduro sled kind of category. Um, but yeah, sounds like Ibis has has figured out something good with the with the new Ritmo. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, certainly you're right that that is kind of a slice of the market that I think makes good sense for a ton of people. I mean, the companies like Ibis and Revel, who are kind of hitting that mark right now, are for the most part, I think, ones that haven't necessarily made that super huge 62 degree head tube angle 170 bike before you know you've still got your transition spires and canyon torques and geometrons and stuff out there doing their thing but it does feel like there has been some more emphasis in the bike world on that class of kind of pretty aggressive but not full-blown enduro bike 150 ish sort of bikes right now and some pretty good ones coming out so on that note how about you Give us a little bit about the Revel Rail 29 that you've been spending time on. Yeah, might as well. Um, I think if we just like cut up what you just said about the Ripmo and just replace Ripmo with Rail 29, I, I don't think I would disagree with anything, which is kind of funny. Um, but yeah, so I guess for some context, I spent most of the earlier summer on um, the new Santa Cruz Mega Tower and the Ibis Tracer 279, which are, yeah, pretty dedicated enduro bikes, definitely a little longer, a little bit more suspension travel than the Rail 29. And so hopping on the Rail 29, um, definitely impressed first and foremost by how well it climbs and just how efficient it feels on, you know, tackling more mellow sections of trail, keeping its speed really well, translating energy into the pedals to through forward movement of the back wheel does those things really well um but also yeah a a pretty capable bike on the way down that doesn't really give you much to complain about um really intuitive geometry that just didn't really take much of a a learning time to to get used to uh it's funny sometimes i'll get on a bike and be like what is going on i i feel like i don't know how to ride my bike anymore and sometimes i'll get on a bike and it'll feel like i've been riding that bike for the past three months um the rail definitely fallen in the in the latter category there and was really fun to to spend some time on all over the valley from from bike park to uh longer more xc-ish kind of rides and yeah it seems like a really versatile offering for folks who maybe think that yeah something like those mid-travel trail bikes are maybe not quite what they need on the way down you know a little they want a little bit more traction a little bit more um, ability to just kind of point it straight and forget about what's in front of you. Um, but maybe aren't quite sold on needing, like we were talking about, a big old enduro bike that foregoes a lot of that versatility when you take it out of steep and chunky terrain. Um, so yeah, really good bike overall. Uh, I guess if I were to complain, I wish that its seat two was just a little bit steeper and its chain stays just a little bit longer. Um, but that is coming from a place where the climbs are very steep. Um, so maybe if you're somewhere else that, you know, you're not exactly winching in your 52 tooth uh, gear all the way up everything, you probably won't have that complaint, but that's reality around here in CB. So um, yeah, not really good bike overall. Uh, we'll be coming out with that full review shortly with uh, both me, myself and Eric Friesen chiming in. So uh yeah, I think uh, Rebel's done a great job with that one. Yeah, that one's just about ready to go. We'll have that out. Not quite when this podcast releases, but shortly thereafter. So stay tuned for that. 
And so then to sort of keep moving up the travel ladder here, I fairly recently put out our full review of the Fizari LaSalle Peak, their 170-170 travel enduro bike, but we haven't chatted about it on here yet, so I figured I'd do a little bit. And I was intrigued by that one. It's a 170 travel bike that Fizari markets as being very versatile for an enduro bike. And the geometry kind of bears that out in the low slack setting. It's got a 64 degree head tube angle, so not wildly aggressive for what it is. Uh, And it does pedal extremely well for a 170 travel trail bike. And so in those kind of ways, it is really versatile. Um, But frankly, it gave me some more trouble in some other respects. And it was kind of a bummer because Fazari's doing some cool stuff with their direct consumer company. Their build kits are extremely good value for the price. The bike I tested was a non-standard build, but it kind of most closely equated to their $6,000 build, which gets you a SRAM GX drivetrain. So nothing fancy, but super solid. RockShox, Zeb, and Super Deluxe Ultimate. So their top end suspension, albeit last year's models, not the new 2023 stuff. Code RSC brakes again. So top end stuff from SRAM there and uh, NVAM30 carbon wheels for six grand, which is sweet. But unfortunately, I really didn't find the LaSalle Peak to kind of be as hard charging and composed when he started pushing it hard as you would hope for from a 170 travel bike. And the geometry is pretty long and, you know, it's not wildly slack, but it's 485 reaching a large 437 chain stays, if I recall correctly, kind of, you know, pretty normal stuff all around. And it just kind of fell in this weird middle ground where you know there's certainly there's more than one way to make a bike that you can push super hard you have your say norco ranges of the world which are heavy super stable super planted do a really good job of just kind of bulldozing whatever's in front of them and not really caring too much what you point them at and certainly giving up some pedaling efficiency and nimbleness in the process but you know that's one way to go about it. And then you can have some stuff like the Orbea Rayon that I reviewed earlier this year being a really good example of this take on a bike where it's a 160 travel enduro bike, but it's a little bit more compact, more nimble, but super precise and lets you kind of go super hard on it as long as you are riding it well and cleanly. And the bike feels like it's working with you and trying to just pick really clean lines, ride everything really smoothly and you have to do some work to get there but if you get it right it all comes together and the bike feels well sorted out for helping you do that and the LaSalle Peak just ended up in this weird middle ground for me where wasn't super stable and plowy didn't feel that precise and easy to just ride super cleanly on either and so I felt kind of stuck in the middle and didn't quite know what to do with it and I think there are a couple kind of key things there. So the geometry is long-ish and slack-ish, but not wildly so. So it's not the most mega-stable enduro bike from that perspective, which is fine. But then it also just, the front triangle in particular doesn't feel very stiff. And I think that manifested in just kind of a lack of steering precision. And so 
it just didn't feel like I could really confidently point it where I wanted to and be on my line all the time. And I was having to make lots of little steering corrections and readjustments in order to keep the bike pointed where I wanted it to be. And so that wasn't great. And then the rear suspension performance left a bit to be desired too. Uh, like I said before, it pedals super efficiently. That part's great, but it doesn't have very good small bump sensitivity and pairs that with not great support kind of in the mid stroke too. And so I mostly ended up just running it very stiff in order to try to stop it from kind of blowing through the middle part of the travel in a way that made it feel like I was kind of pitching back and forth more than I wanted to be. And, sort of exacerbating the kind of moderate stability of the bike in general. But then doing that, it wasn't very planted and was kind of rough and just, I had a hard time with that when it really didn't come together for me very well, unfortunately. Hmm. Yeah. I guess I'm finding myself um, asking the same sort of question we went over with the uh, spectral 125. Like, is there an ideal rider for this bike or do you kind of just feel like Fazari maybe needs to tweak a few things to to get this to to be uh, a good a good option for for somebody yeah i mean i struggled with that a little bit too and you should go read the full review which is up we got a lot more on that but i think so the things that it has going for it are again that it pedals really really well and so if you want a 170 travel bike that you want that much suspension travel, not so much because you're riding super gnarly trails all the time and need all that suspension for just riding the burliest stuff you can find, but more that you'd just rather run the suspension a bit softer and have something that's more plush and cushy and aren't as worried about maximum stability and being able to charge super hard on it. It does make some sense there. And then the other thing too is just the value in terms of the build kits because i mean i think that it would be a better bike for way more people if the frame was refined a little bit better but at the same time if you start comparing that six thousand dollar bill that i just described a minute ago to what you get for six grand on i just used the santa cruz mega tower as an example in the review i mean the fazari is an immensely better build spec take the frame out of the picture for a second and so, you know, are there going to be people for who just have six grand to spend and that difference in parts quality kind of makes up the difference in the frames in terms of the big picture and overall ride quality? Probably, yeah. I mean, you've got better suspension, better brakes, better wheels, and so on and so forth. And that all counts for something. And so, yeah, I wish the frame was sorted out a little bit better, but the part spec is compelling. And um, I think there's something to be said for this being kind of a know thyself situation and taking an honest assessment of whether those trade-offs in the frame that I just described are acceptable in exchange for getting really, really good parts for the money. And I think for some folks, the answer to that's going to be yes. And that's fine. That makes sense. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I think you, you answered my question. Anyway, keep it rolling here. And on a note of bikes that I am more psyched about, the new Santa Cruz Nomad. Been spending time on that as well. And 
it is very, very good in short. And it, which is interesting because as I've talked about here, probably more than a bunch of you have wanted to hear, I uh, don't necessarily have the best personal track record of getting along with mullet bikes for reasons that we've discussed, including last time we did a review reports episode. But the Nomad is really, really clicking on that front. And so it's a 170, 170 enduro bike still as per the last generation, but it's now a mullet rather than being a full 27.5 bike like the last one was. And it's actually using the same front triangle as the Mega Tower that we jointly reviewed earlier in the summer. And they've just made a different rear end to accommodate the smaller rear wheel. And what's interesting about that is that the Nomad actually has slightly longer chainstays than the Mega Tower and exactly the same geometry otherwise. It's a mullet, but the geometry change is, is literally just the chainstay length. The, they have variable chainstays by size. The Nomad is, I think, three millimeters longer in a given size than the Mega Tower is. And yet Santa Cruz talks about the Nomad as being the more nimble, playful, free ridey kind of bike rather than the supposedly hard charging enduro race bike that they mean the mega tower to be. And despite the extra wheelbase on the nomad, they're completely correct about that. It is. I mean, there's definitely a strong family resemblance as you'd expect. Same front triangle, etc. Very similar suspension performance, though some subtle differences there get into that later but the nomad is just a little more nimble little quicker to throw around and what has really worked for it for me i think is those longer chain states and so i won't rehash this too much what i've talked about not loving about mullets in the past is kind of the sensation of feeling like you are kind of just riding over the rear wheel with yourself really centered and having to do a lot of steering input to sort of initiate the lean into a corner and then catch the bike as it almost flops into a turn and kind of almost counter steer out of it. And I totally get why for some folks that manifests as the bike feeling quicker handling and sharper in a way that is good. For me, I often prefer to kind of be a little more forward on the bike and do sort of a more of a load up the bike through the pedals into a corner and just kind of feel like you're carving in a little bit more. And the mullet bikes just tend to not do that as well for me. The nomad still feels distinctly like a mullet bike in a lot of ways, but just feels more balanced and more versatile in how it is willing to corner well. And so it just feels like it'll kind of adapt to a variety of approaches that you want to take with it and make it all work. And it's just really clicking for me. It's a very cool take on a bike that is long travel, pretty composed speed and all the rest. But despite that feels notably nimble, notably easy to throw around and notably fun if you're not trying to go super super hard on it despite it being a pretty big burly bike for the most part and i'm very very impressed with it that's cool that's good to hear yeah i was 
I guess a little surprised that Santa Cruz basically got rid of front 27.5 wheels and their entire lineup, I guess, unless you're in the extra smalls and some of their bikes. Um, yeah, molded out basically everything now that that was a 27.5. Um, but sounds like it was it was maybe for the better. And I guess quickly, do you have any quick thoughts on the old Nomad versus this new one? Because I, I guess the, the old Nomad wasn't really that much different geometry wise apart from the mullet yeah and chain stay length the chain stays on the old one were a bunch shorter um yeah good question so the new one definitely feels like quote-unquote more bike it's more stable not as nimble not as kind of playful as the old one was so you know, depending on what you're looking for in the bike, that may or may not be a good thing. I really liked the old one, too. They don't feel like quite the same thing anymore. New ones, definitely more stable, definitely more composed going fast, not quite as just straight up nimble and interested in kind of throwing the bike around all over the place. So for better or worse, depending on what you want to get out of it but i think they both did what they did really well they're just aimed at something a little bit different now gotcha and yeah i i think you called it an enduro bike a few times would you would you not call it a free ride bike yeah i don't know i mean i guess we're getting kind of arbitrary i would definitely have called the old one a free ride bike except that it feels like that moniker is kind of almost dead these days the new one i mean maybe it's a a new school free ride bike i don't know it sort of feels somewhere in between to me i guess like it wouldn't be crazy to start show up and start racing some enduros on it especially if you just prefer a mullet and don't want the big rear wheel buzzing your ass or whatever on the mega tower you know it it's not like it's some kind of just quick handling not super stable thing that you wouldn't want to try to go fast and race on it certainly could do that no problem um it's just a little bit more nimble potentially easygoing twist on the mega tower but it feels a lot more similar to the mega tower than the old one did to the old mega tower if that makes sense gosh that does make sense yeah i was actually in green river utah a few weekends ago doing some free riding on the mega tower and I was, I, I didn't have any, any rear wheel to, to ass moments, but I was thinking, I was like, man, this is probably a good, good place to test a nomad. If, if only David could ship it down to me for a weekend, <laughs> but that, that made zero sense. So yeah, had had a good time on the mega tower anyway. Right on. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of wraps up the stuff that we've been spending time on, but just real quick, I was thinking there's been some interesting stuff released recently and kind of in the pipeline in the bike world and so i was curious just for anything that has caught your eye recently that you are most interested in most curious to get some time on anything along those lines yeah i mean i did talk a little bit earlier about that fuel ex and how that was to me, I think one of the most interesting and exciting bikes that dropped this year and not just because it has Trek on its down tube and given, you know, Trek in like a size 10 font instead of like a size 50 font that Trek has been historically known for. Um, 
yeah, even if that wasn't a trek, I think I'd still be be pretty interested in that in that bike. And yeah, I hope it's, it's good that we have you on it doing the doing the testing, um, so I don't have to get disappointed by it in case it wasn't everything I dreamt it up to be. Um, but I guess I don't really have any specific bike models or other products that come to mind as being something I'm super excited to get on or something that just uh, really got my attention when it came out. But I guess more so just a class of bikes and it's a class of e-bikes to be completely fair um, of these companies coming out with these, you know, lighter, a little bit shorter travel, you know, like sub 40 pound e-bikes that I don't know, they're, they're pretty exciting to me, honestly, because I guess I haven't been the biggest proponent of e-bikes historically. I, I have nothing against them, but I guess when we're in that class of like, 50 pounds and like 170 millimeters i'm kind of like why don't you just get on a dirt bike anyway that's kind of my thinking with those bikes but yeah when, when we had this i, I wouldn't maybe call it an emerging class but maybe a more refined class of these shorter travel lighter e-bikes that maybe have a little bit less range maybe it's something that makes more sense to just throw a battery in your pack if you're going to be going for longer um but here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, we have hundreds of miles of motorized trail that I think it'd be super cool to to go take an e-bike out and you know crush like 30 miles in a in an hour or something. And and so yeah, I think to be honest, that's what what's got me most excited. And you know, e-bike hater comments just come right at me. But I don't know. It's just that's my those are my thoughts. What about you? Yeah, I mean that class of e-bikes does look interesting and uh, we will have to see what we can do about lining up one or two of those for you come spring. But for me, I think the most recent thing that sort of come down the pipe is the Nikolai Nucleon 16, primarily for the wall bikes, super drive drive train on it. It's slated to, if you haven't seen that uh, we've got a first look of the, of the bike on the site and I did a podcast a little while back with Cedric of Law Bikes, the inventor of the Superdrive. Um, basically, it's this kind of crazy concept for a sort of derailleur-based drivetrain, but one that decouples the two functions of a derailleur, which are to, is to say shifting and maintaining chain tension. And so the whole thing is packaged up into the frame. There's no derailleur hanging down to get smashed on stuff. And seems like a potentially very cool new iteration of the mountain bike drivetrain and the nucleon 16s looking like it's going to be the first production bike to make it to market with that drivetrain they've actually just announced a couple of days ago that they're taking orders now the bike got announced a few months back but um sounds like it's getting pretty close to production and i've been talking with nikolai about getting us one so uh still hammering out some details there but Hopefully, we should be getting on one before too terribly long here. They should start shipping to customers before super long here. And I am super, super excited to see how that shakes out because it seems like a very cool idea with some potential to really improve bike drivetrains. And uh, that's something we haven't seen in too much uh, uh, development on in a bit, really. You know, derailleur drivetrains have certainly gotten immensely better in the last 10 or even five years but there hasn't, you know, gearboxes haven't really taken off. There hasn't been that 
paradigm shifting new version of it. And, you know, we'll have to see how it goes on trail, but this looks like it at least maybe could be. Yeah, that was definitely one of the more interesting bikes that I've seen drop recently. Just, yeah, of course, with the with the wall drivetrain, but same with the geometry and, and just sort of how that, how that bike looks like it just, it just looks wildly different than, than anything else. And yeah, there's definitely a lot to be improved around the modern drivetrain I'd say. And it seems like the, um, the, the law system has quite a few of those things, um, figured out, but yeah, I'm just super curious as to, yeah, is this, is this just going to say, stay super niche or are more brands going to start adopting this and, and putting them on bikes? Cause it seems like things like this have popped up, like the gearbox that you, that you mentioned. I remember a couple of years ago, everyone's like, Oh, gearboxes are, they're going to be on every bike in like three years. And three years later that didn't happen. So yeah. Curious. People have been saying that for a lot longer <laughs> than three years. Man. It's been decades all right maybe maybe i'm not as old as you david okay um jonathan was calling me 14 years old on the happy hour a couple weeks ago uh, and while i'm not 14 uh i guess i i guess i'm not as as well versed in the world of of ancient gearboxes as you are um uh. Well, that backfired. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, too far, too far. <laughs> no, no, you're good. Yeah, anyway, very excited about that one. And the other thing that I kind of wanted to shout out here while we're doing kind of crazy enduro bikes, the Contra MC, uh, Evan Turpin's high pivot steel bike with a more conventional high pivot layout, but some really interesting design details on there. Been in touch with him too. Bikes are in production. Got my name down for one. So I think it's going to be a little bit before that's ready to go. But we will be spending time on that at some point in the not terribly distant future as well. And quite excited for that one as well. Just looks like a very well thought out bike. Geometry looks really good. Suspension looks really good. And just have to see how it all goes on trail. But pretty excited for that one as well. Yeah. Another super interesting bike too. And yeah, these, these smaller brands doing pretty cool stuff sort of feels like, I don't know, the innovation part of the bike industry. If you think about, you know, five, six years ago, or I don't know if David's going to tell me that this happened way earlier than it actually did again. But, you know, when the big, long, slack, low, steep C-tube angles revolution happened, it really started with, with smaller niche brands doing things that seem pretty radical at the time. So yeah, again, interested to see what's going to catch on, what isn't and yeah, what, what other bike companies are going to start doing to respond to it. Yeah, for sure. It'll be interesting to see where all this goes. And it feels like it wasn't that long ago that we were saying that the geometry revolution that you just referred to seemed like it was kind of tapering off and we were wondering a little bit what the next thing was going to be and high pivots and mullets have been part of that. And some of these new drivetrain options like the super drive or the Trinity gearbox that I've talked about with Mick Williams of Williams racing products and Trinity a few times on here. And, you know, bikes are better than they've ever been, but there's still stuff to improve. And it's cool to see a lot of these little guys coming out and, 
taking some big swings and trying some pretty different, pretty new stuff. And it'll be cool to see what catches on and what doesn't. So uh, lots more good stuff to come there and looking forward to learning more about all of it. But I think that's about it for now. So Dylan, thanks as always for the chat. It's been fun and I'll catch you soon here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And maybe I'll see you up in Washington in a couple months. Yeah. Sounds like you're heading up this way in a little bit. So uh, we'll have to make that happen. Yeah. Sounds good. See you later, man. Have a good evening. You as well. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And I just want to say thanks to Dylan Wood for chatting. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.